Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. This episode is definitely a change of pace from all other Chicago Capital episodes. I am joined by one of the smartest junior VCs I have come across, Dan Knight. I work with Dan at Manifold, and I can honestly say he's an encyclopedia of information when it comes to due diligencing early stage startups. Dan and I often chat about the topics we covered today, and we figured it could be a fun episode to feature some of our learnings, although they are mostly Dan's that I have just borrowed. Dan has a background in software engineering and growth investing, and his experiences have built a wealth of knowledge that he draws on every day. This episode will be extremely insightful for anyone looking to break into VC or for anyone who will be pitching VCs in the future. I can't thank Dan enough for taking the time to chat with me and letting me pick his brain for the hundredth time in a week. My hope is for him to become a recurring guest on Chicago Capital. With that said, here is our conversation. Dan Knight, thank you very much for joining us on a special edition, maybe I'll call it a special edition of Chicago Capital. Really appreciate you taking the time. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Matt. Excited to be here. I think it'd be helpful for anyone listening to get a bit of your background, how you ended up in Manifold Ventures and kind of where you sort of started out your career. Yeah, yeah, happy to share. Just to keep it, you know, kind of brief and succinct. Um, originally from Chicago, grew up in grew up in the Burbs. I went to school at Northwestern. It, it kind of funny. I had no idea what I was going to study. I like was like applied math or some made up STEM major. Did a startup my first two years, which is the only reason I bring it up is that's why I first met our our superior Brett Klein, who we connected. Just had a brief coffee, and he he knew my company was garbage, uh, but we met then. And so it was kind of funny. I went from kind of nebulous STEM major to computer science. Learned more about startups. Ended up working for a couple of Chicago companies. Got better at coding, got better at startup stuff. Push came to shove. I had to get a job. I didn't know anything about financial services, professional services. Learned about that my junior year. Did like the classic, I don't know, the quick hitting, how do you do a case study and how do you apply to a consulting job? Uh, But I think the startup strategy got the better of me. And I feel like I averaged doing a startup and consulting and ended up at a venture firm. So I I joined OpenView Partners out of school. I worked there for about a year and a half. And just for context, what that job is, is a lot of, it's a mix of venture and growth equity. So you you look at Series A and Series B SaaS companies at the earliest stages looking for both kind of venture style outcomes, but also growth style uh, traction and, and did that and learned a ton. And then just, I joined Manifold after that job uh, in January. And sorry, I skipped this part, but I actually interned for, for Manifold as a software engineer my senior year, just kind of getting buddy-buddy. They knew I was going to OpenView, wanted to continue a relationship, et cetera. Um, I think the writing was on the wall from that people kind of knew what might happen in a couple of years and learned everything at OV, popped over to uh, Manifold. And yeah, that's that's the long and the short of it, man. I'm really excited to be here, though. That's awesome. Thanks so much for the background. I think it definitely is going to help contextualize a lot of um, our conversation. And I think the genesis for this conversation and, you know, full disclosure for all listeners, uh, it'll be pretty unscripted. Dan and I spent a lot of time working on deal memos for new investments that Manifold is analyzing. And like most venture capital firms, not every, but a lot of venture capital firms, the process of making an investment usually involves somebody like Dan or myself meeting with entrepreneurs first, getting a sense for them, getting a sense for their business And then starting to put together materials for partners and for an eventual IC committee. 
And um, the memo process is sort of a, you know, it's a rite of passage to getting any deal done. It, it sort of is how we catalog and institutionalize our thoughts about any particular startup. I think it's one of the most fun parts of the job. I come from a research background. Dan comes from this background that, like he said, he's trying to analyze, you know, what are the growth metrics that a growth equity investor might look at, pairing that with, is this a venture scalable business? So I figured today we could start just basically unlifting, lifting the veil a little bit as to how we at Manifold go about putting together these memos, because that gives insight into basically how we're analyzing these companies. And Dan, if, if you have anything to add to, to that sort of diatribe about memos, feel free. Otherwise, I can we can kick things off from the top. No, no, I think, I think that's spot on. And yeah, you said it best, right? It's a rite of passage and it's how we, it's our kind of source of truth. It's a huge integral part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. So excited to talk about it. So I think we could start with the top of the memo, which is usually the beginning of the investor pitch and the first part of the conversation with any founder, the problem section. So Dan, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it to you. How do you like to think about the problem section? And you know that might be a larger conversation of what types of problems do you like to see founders going after? And, and how do you categorize problems we could start there, I think. Yeah, yeah, happy. I, feel free to kind of guide me too, but in, in no order. I tend to like to start with like who's who uh, and who, what, you know, people have problems, businesses have problems, and that's kind of the starting point, right? In my head, there's almost like a matrix of there's three types of people or three types of things we care about, and there's three types of problems or values they see. So in that matrix, on one side, you have an institution, a buyer, and a user. An institution would be like a a manifold, a buyer would maybe be Brett and he buys software for us or he buys podcasting equipment and then you or I would be the user. And then we also have three other values, right? And this gets into value prop and is me getting a little ahead of myself. And that's revenue uh, revenue increase, cost savings, risk mitigation. And so you kind of want to pair that up and see, you know, if someone pitches you something, how does that line up for who and what are they doing? The problems themselves, I there's a million ways to skin a cat. I think about them in terms of jobs to be done. So, right, like that may, that kind of lets me know there is a real problem there, that kind of matrix. Then you zoom out and you think, okay, like, what does that look like on the day to day, right? Like Matt needs headphones, right? So, or maybe Matt needs to have better soundproofing and that's a job to be done, right? And then that would map to like maybe a user risk mitigation value. So that's high level and it's, you know, again, a million ways to do it. That's just kind of my quick mental math. And I should back up a second and let listeners know that, for the majority of this conversation, we're going to be likely focusing on B2B software startups. That will just help put the rest of the conversation in the right frame of mind, especially because a lot of the problems we're looking at at Manifold are at the enterprise level. Every firm is different. Every investment scope is different. But uh, I just felt I should give that caveat moving forward. So we look at, as listeners know, we look at seed stage investments, You know, sometimes pre-seed, sometimes early Series A. And uh, usually it's B2B software or some kind of tech-enabled service. Dan, one thing that usually we try and answer that I'd love to get your opinion on is is vitamins and painkillers. Mm-hmm. To you, what's the difference? Why is that so important? Yeah, yeah. I um, People know, <laughs> it's a great question, right? Like vitamins being something that's nice to have, um, painkiller being something you need to have is one way to frame it. I think that's a good mental model. Another way to think about it is like, you know when you're in pain right? There's an expectation. There's an expectation of alleviating that pain. And um, when there's an expectation, there's this notion of the 
the customer, the user, the person who has the job to be done is educated and ready and ready to find you uh, versus a vitamin, right? Like, unless you go to the doctor, maybe you don't know you need more iron. And I think that there's no end persona expectation with a vitamin and there is an expectation with a painkiller. And that's that's the heart of the issue, right? We want to find people who know what they need so we can offer it. And yeah, people, again, one guy's perspective, vitamin versus painkiller is such a great mental model. It captures so much in such a succinct beautiful phrase you know was that who coined that originally is that an open view uh term or is that sort of ubiquitous across all venture asking from my own perspective only having been at manifold curious if that's a was that a dan knight special oh gosh i wish I, that was that creative i actually um just to play the manifold name game i'm pretty sure i first heard it in this entrepreneurship class with the gentleman's name was professor Sayal. And the only reason I bring this up is because he was crafty. Crafty is one of Manifold's gold star portfolio companies. We have a ton of respect for Ishan and them. He was one of the, he was like their seed investor and he's only seeded one company. He's like kind of a, he's just uh, salt of the earth. Yeah. Bat in a thousand. Yeah. Bat in a thousand. God, I wish I was that good. And yeah, I'm pretty, he was, I'm pretty sure the first guy to ever tell me vitamin versus painkiller. I think another question that I had, especially early on, this idea of trying to assess the potency of a problem for an enterprise. How do you go? So a founder pitches you, they tell you there's this problem in some vertical, or maybe it's horizontal. Um, how do you go about you, Dan Knight? Like, how do you go about assessing that problem? Like truly seeing how painful it is. You know, you could, you know, there's Ebus World. There's a bunch of different kind of resources you can pull from to get these macro research reports. And you can do, you know, Googling and you can try and get a feel for if the problem is real. But how do you like to go about validating the problem and validating its status as a vitamin or a painkiller? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's the heart of the issue. It depends on who we're talking about, right? So that kind of that user buyer institution perspective, it it's as with most ventures, it's a little funny money, right? It's touch and go, fly by night. There's a couple like tactics which you can do, one of which is customer interviews. Matt, you and I have gone back and forth on that. Is you start to get deeper with a company, you start to accrue this sort of knowledge base. And uh, it's kind of like a consulting hack, but right? Like if you have 10 interviews and you mark someone as saying, you know, three of 10 really didn't think it was a problem, seven of 10 did, right? All of a sudden that becomes a metric. And that becomes a metric you can put in a deck and that's become, you can quantify. That's a bit of a little bit of false precision. There's also, as we talk about customer calls, that's kind of quantification. There's the other piece of just an appeal to ETH or an appeal to emotion. Quotes are the most powerful thing, right? And and you can find these like really descriptive narratives of people feeling it. And when you get the quote, you know you have it. And then it's just a matter of figuring out, yeah, when that quote exists, you just got to figure out how many people else are saying it. I remember somebody saying that a lot of ex-journalists I've heard can make good for good VCs because there is almost a journalistic uh, pursuit of trying to assess the problem, trying to talk to as many people as you can. Personally, I think the customer calls are one of, if not the most fun part of diligence, you get to talk to and meet people from across the country in all different types of verticals who do jobs that are completely different from your own. And you just basically get to pull up next to them and say, hey, tell me about the most painful parts of your job. What do you wish could be fixed? And you do get some amazing, amazing sound bites usually out of those conversations. You learn so much about an industry you never would have learned about before. And I just think it's a really cool way to uh, to meet people and to I don't know, just broaden your horizons a little bit, both professionally and I don't know, that's probably a that's probably a rant about uh, out of scope for for the memo. But I, I do really think that customer calls are, are one of the most enjoyable part of the job. I think 
we could probably move to now the solution part of the memo. Dan, for you, what do you usually like to include in the solution aspect of a memo? And could you just walk us through how you try to, or if you try to answer the pain points that you uncovered in the problem section in the solution section? Yeah, you want, so happy to walk through that. Also, if you want to go back to the journalism thing, I have a funny anecdote, but we maybe, maybe at the end of the Do it. No, let's do it. We're all about sidetracks are what makes the episode. This is, this is it. So funny thing. Have you, have you seen the social network? Oh, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. It's low hanging fruit. I listen to that soundtrack basically every single day, one time through. I am in the 0.1% top listeners of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross on Spotify. Claim to fame, headstone, tombstone stuff right there, but please continue. (laughs) It's good to have goals. I was just, uh, okay. So there's the scene where Zuck goes and he's like with Sean Parker and there's, we're going to be late for this meeting with Sequoia because I don't like Sequoia. And the, the VC they didn't like was Mike Moritz, who is like, in essence, that, yeah, I, I can see you smiling, who is like Sequoia, you know, and he kind of, my understanding, and I, I am not privy to their structures, but he's pretty much the the, the, the GOAT. And uh, he comes from a journalism background. And just funnily enough, this is just a total anecdote. I was at, I've gone to one work conference, and I had one call, and I was sitting next to another associate. We're shooting the breeze, as VC associates do, trying to one-up each other and saying who's got the best deals. And she's like, oh, my God, Mike Moritz is behind you. And I turn around and it's just, I mean, I just, it was like blown away. But anyway, he has a, he comes from, I think, a decade-long journalism background and somehow ended up at Sequoia, however that works. So just a funny case in point. So the question of like, Ari, like, what does it mean to kind of go from problem to solution? How do you think about that? And just to answer that, the mental model, and this is right, if we think about, okay, what does it mean for someone to be a painkiller? We think a painkiller because a consumer has an expectation we have to figure out like what is actually alleviating that expectation. If it's a painkiller and it's ad and the solution is Advil, what's the active ingredient in the Advil? Most often this looks, this is actually probably one of the easier parts of the memo when you know it's right. Because you just kind of look at their sales materials and what they're saying to the, the user. Like feature X does this. It's the active ingredient. So that's like a mental model. And that that varies industry by industry, right? Matt, we've already seen, I'm mean, literally, I don't want to reveal too much about what we're doing right after this, but like we've seen this start to pop up, right? You can, you know, when you found it, I think is kind of the way I frame it. Yeah, it's, it's, if the problem solution part of the memo becomes increasingly easier to, easier to write, you probably, I think one of two things, either you're completely sort of narrowed your scope too much and you're just trying to write a good memo and you sort of stop thinking about, you know, all the jobs to be done and you're basically just trying to get this memo to look as good narratively as possible, or you're actually really onto something. You found a salient solution and you're almost, it's like a -a whack-a-mole almost. Like you're seeing problems arise in the industry. You're seeing them arise for the end potential end users and whatever it is, whatever this startup is that you're looking, whatever the software is that you're looking at, their solution, you're seeing it connect. You're seeing it being able to match all those whack. I love this whack-a-mole analogy. I don't know why I didn't use it ever before. You're starting to see it sort of match each one of those. Do you like to look for and do you like to be able to quantify the specific ROI that a solution can give an end user? Is that something you need to see and you need to be able to quantify in your solution section in order to be comfortable? It is not something you need to see. And this is me cheating, but I know the next section and this is the bridge to the next section. So right when you think about ROI calculus- Hey, you're you're doing my job for me. I mean, I'm the one that's supposed to bridge us to the next parts of the conversation. Uh, We're just too in sync. We've done too many of these. It's a great question. It's interesting. I'd say that the answer to that question varies by stage, right? Like if you're a pre-seed investor and you have an ROI calc, it's made up. 
if you're doing pre-IPO investing and you don't see an ROI calc, I'd be a little spooked. And so that's, it's kind of interesting, right? So it's one of those things of like, as a institutional investor, you should have the question on your mind and whether you need to see it or not is hopefully up to your pattern recognition and your judgment. Another way to frame it, and I'm just kind of riffing and we've talked about this, right? Is like sample size, right? If it's a smaller scale, how do I phrase this? If there's a smaller end consumer, customer, it doesn't have to be, right? If there's more, if there's more transactions you should hopefully see see more quantification. Uh, and that's another litmus test for like if you should see an ROI calc. I think that leads perfectly, as you said, into the value, quote unquote, value section of the memo. And, and this gets into a few components of, of the investment and what we look at. But from a high level, you know, Dan, for you, what are you trying to accomplish in the value section? What are kind of the subsectors that you're looking at in that particular section? Yeah, it's a great question. The subsections are in, in no particular order. We talk about value prop, we talk about ROI, we talk about pricing and packaging, we talk about ideal customer profile. We kind of want to, the way I think about the value section for when we create a narrative for our firm is if there's like layers of abstraction, right? And we have at this base layer, like jobs to be done and these really tactical UX experiences. And then there's another layer, right? Which is kind of understanding value prop and how things relate. And then there's another layer above that, which is like the business model. And then above that is like deal dynamics and exit market. But right, we're kind of transitioning from stage two to three. And we want to really get a clear sense of how this nebulous tactical UX experience translates to a value metric into gross revenue and how that starts to impact real business outcomes. That's the name of the game um, in my head. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, right? I mean, this is, you know, we're all figuring out day to day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think too, another area that might come into play here is a little bit on the market and the competitive set. And I don't know the way I, I try to categorize that in my head, this might be where something like a bottoms up TAM might go. This might be where you initially outline who are the major competitors in this market. And I will, uh, I'll say my bit on bottoms up TAM, which is basically all, you know, this knowledge or this opinion I have is borrowed heavily from Dan and uh, also <laughs> from, from, uh, from, you know, Booth where, where I've been studying, you know, uh, Professor Jason Helzer over at Origin and Ira Weiss at Hyde Park Ventures. I think it's fair to say that if, if you're doing your job as a junior VC associate, you should really always be focusing on bottoms up TAM. Top down TAM that you can get from a macro research report is nice. That's usually just the amount of revenue generated by a certain particular sector or vertical of the economy in a year. I've seen some top-down TAM numbers that will use that number, so that top-down revenue number from the furnishings industry, for example. And then you can look at uh, a Gartner report that will show you IT spend by industry. And maybe you can configure that, oh, the furnishings industry spends 6% uh, a year or 6% of its IT spend a year on software. So you can come and in, in, in back of an envelope, trickle down a potential spend on software from that top-down number in any given year. And Dan, I would love to hear your sort of heuristic on bottoms up, how you like to go about generating a bottoms up TAM analysis. And if I've missed anything or I've misspoken for you on that particular subject, please feel free to clarify me. No, 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 you're spot on. And just uh, totally, thank you. We could talk about why market op and competitive advantage, competitive step go in value. 
which is like maybe its own separate thread. But just relative to bottoms of TAM, it, tactically, right, it's TAM is a silly, it's a third grade arithmetic sort of thing. It's how much people are paying you and how many people there are who could pay you. And it's up to your discretion to do that. There's, I mean, people, turns out VCs aren't that creative, right? You can count Twitter followers, you can count LinkedIn companies, you can go on yellow pages, I've done it, like, if it, it, figure out how many people can pay you and how much they pay you and multiply. And if you can answer those questions, you'll get it. There's more meta questions and you've brought it just to flush out your point, right? Like now that top down is wrong, they're complimentary. And you want to, I think at least since January, when we started working together, I've almost always gone bottoms up, Tam, here's how I got those numbers. Here's some top down commentary. So, you know, my ballpark isn't wrong. And then let's talk about Kager and Kager. Kager is the most interesting. I mean, just while we're having this conversation, right? Like Kager, I think it's something we probably underemphasize as a firm, right? Because the real, you get a big market with a big tail when that's when you get a big outcome. And it's just this other piece that is just so tough to suss out. But yeah, it's a fun exercise for sure. I think you're totally spot on too. I think the growth component, a lot of, again, this is kind of practical, I guess, more pragmatic advice, but like usually top-down market research reports, do you have a viewpoint? Do you have a sense of how a market's growing and the industry dynamics? And sometimes that can be very important to understand, especially you know if you're an e-commerce company dealing with a particular vertical of e-commerce or an e-commerce enablement mm-hmm. you know, software tool, you do need to kind of understand what are the trends, what are sort of the, what's the macro picture uh, before you're going to invest in a company that you're hoping to have venture scalable returns. Dan, I did want to ask you a question because I know this is an area you and I have actually both spent time diligent diligencing companies that have run up into smaller TAMs, which I kind of think of as less than a billion. But again, correct me, give your viewpoint if you have a different one. If a startup is running up against a smaller TAM or constraining or, or a uh, shrinking TAM over time, how do you get comfortable with an investment in that area? Is that an immediate deal killer for you personally? Or how do you sort of go about justifying an investment in a growth constrained or a TAM constrained market? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. The short answer is everything grows along an S-curve. TAM is a good proxy for the upper bound of the S-curve. If you see a lower TAM, you better be further along the curve. The long answer is another way to think about S-curves and TAMs is with expected value. So putting on like our probability one-on-one hat, if we have a portfolio of investments and TAMs is the value of a right, totally back of envelope, right? That, that relates to S-curve, like we should see the probability go up. But there's another piece, which is why people have different investment preferences. And I think, sorry, this is like a whole digression. So you just have to tolerate it. But if you think about the decreasing marginal utility argument, right? Decreasing marginal utility is a law of economics, quote unquote. Ironically, and that relates to venture like intimately. And the longer people go in their venture career, this is crazy. The more they shift towards larger TAMs because they've seen if you're if you're successful in venture, that probably means you're doing a good job. And so you want to see larger and larger outcomes. So it's just really funny. There's this, at least in my experience qualifying that, there's a constant battle between what TAMs people want to see and where they are in their career. And that's just another piece of the puzzle, which is just this whole other thing. But man, it's a great question. I could I could riff on that all day. That is actually fascinating. I had not heard that perspective before. And now part of me just wants to spend the rest half hour diving very deep into that. Um, where are you right now in your career with TAMs, Dan? Like, where would you put your sort of your comfortability or your progression right now? Where do you think you you like to see? What do you like to see? 
Oh man, I'm 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 lazy, man. I'm a hundred million dollar TAM guy. No, I I tease. I uh, I'm very not hung up on actual current TAMs. I'm hung up. I joke with like hundred million dollar. It's all funny money. It's all order of magnitude, finger in the air sort of stuff. But I really I like focus. I like focus. I like small TAM. I, I equate small TAM with focus business, and I like focus businesses in large and growing markets. That's if I could pick my poison. But curious yep. to flip the question to you. I you've been doing it. What's resonated? Where do you like to spend your time? I used to think that it was almost an immediate disqualifier to have a TAM sub a billion, sub 800, 700 million. The more time I spend at Manifold, the more time I spend working with uh, folks like you, folks like Brett Klein, especially Brett, sometimes those actually, and maybe this is just sort of pairing what you've already said, but sometimes those do actually represent the most enticing opportunities. You mentioned focus. I think that's absolutely the right word. I think we've also looked at investments where their initial beachhead product or market, yeah, it's a small TAM, but I think we've gotten comfortable with what is the next market? What's the adjacent market? What's the adjacent product that maybe they could build on to that initial product? And it's also, I think, a matter of does their next iteration of the business makes sense with what they already currently have. And do we think it's actually a viable roadmap for the business today? And if we do, I think you've answered the question right there. If it seems like they're just saying industry X is a small TAM, two to five years from now, we're going to move to industry Y. If it doesn't feel like there's uh, a natural kind of rhythm, a natural evolution there, then I think that's that can be worrisome. And I also think too, and this gets us into maybe our next point is the competitive set, the competitive landscape. Mm-hmm. If you're in a small TAM, sub-billion TAM, and I think if you're going through that competitive set exercise and you're just finding competitors everywhere you look and you're using G2 and you're seeing that they're getting very good reviews actually and there seems to be some customer enthusiasm. And G2 is a great tool. There's also Gartner there's also, again, you just have to do a lot of customer calls. You have to get a sense. Sometimes you can get one great customer call, one great sort of SME call that it's hard to take one sample size and extrapolate it into a larger theme. But if you talk to the right person, you really can get a good sense as quickly as you can for what's going on in the market. And I think another point to make is that sometimes we do need to come to POVs as efficiently as possible. And that's why I think it's an underrated component of the job to be able to source high quality SMEs, to know where to go for subject matter experts, to leverage your network, to honestly sometimes scrape LinkedIn to see whoever you can find. Oh, totally. It just, I mean, I know we've literally had this conversation in Slack. It's all blocking and tackling and no one talks about it, right? People watch Silicon Valley too much and like think it's like venture is so much blocking and tackling. It's not arguably more than any other... I was a software engineer. I know you worked at a, did a massive amount of equity research, right? This is the most blocking tackling I've ever done professionally, period. So just totally, I couldn't agree more. I think if there's anything else you wanted to add to the competitive set question, yeah. feel free. I think that's an area that, do you think it's the first area? Honestly, like this is a meta question, but do you think it's one of the first areas you should focus when you're writing the memo? Like, should you look immediately to competitors and see what's out there in the market? Or how do you, what spooks you in a competitive landscape that you've put together? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. It's a great question. I don't look about, I mean, there's a reason we order it this way. It's funny. What spooks me is it depends on the thesis. That's just a bad answer. Right, it just maybe zooming out for like how you should th- how I think about it, not how one should. 
But is right if we think about like a micro econ transaction, right? There's some producer su surplus and some consumer surplus, and the reason we talk about competitive set in the value section is because we want to get a sense of if this business is doing well or seeing transactions happen. That's some notion of of consumer surplus and producer surplus, and then we and you know where I'm going next. You know the next section. But we want to get a sense of okay, well, like just finger in the air. How is this competitive advantage? Like, why are they? Why are those transactions happening? And how is that producer surplus going to trend, right? Because that is legitimately the surplus is the value, and we want to know if producer surplus is going to continue, and if there's going to be competitive advantage. And then that's how I, again, just like high level mental model and the questions we're trying to answer. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I love that you're getting into uh, a little bit of micro econ jargon here. We got producer surplus going around. I mean, this is this is great. I think this is uh, we've officially we're on to something good here. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I would agree. I'd echo everything you said. Quantity itself of competitors, personally, sometimes I have a hard time just completely passing on something just because there's a lot of competitors out there. I think quality is just as important, but quality is harder much harder to assess. And so I think that's a question that everybody sort of has to get comfortable with on their own. And I think the more repetitions you get, the more pattern recognition you can have on this particular topic. But, you know, you mentioned the next section of the memo, I'd, I'd you know, I'd, I'll let you lead into it and then uh, talk about how these two relates. Well, if I just the legitimately the next thing we talk about this is like, we go from like the meta section of value to the next section of growth. And just there's so much there, right? Relative. This is growth, the by the way, this is this is like to me the meat of the episode, and this is why. Again, backing up, Dan just has this experience from OpenView, where um, I think part of my time at Manifold has just been trying to constantly pick his brain. He comes from this very almost metrics-oriented, you know, school of investing. A common statement I would hear about the seed stage and the pre-seed stage sometimes is, you know, metrics really don't matter. It's it's just about the market. It's about the founders, but. Um, I would disagree. And I think that Dan, I will let you, you know, I'll let you take it from here. But I do think there are a lot of metrics you can still uh, glean from early stage companies that are important. Oh, my God. Uh, agreed. And, and just this is like such a meta comment and a digression. But right. It some metrics matter. Some don't. It, how, how big is your portfolio? If you have 100 pre-seed investments, you probably shouldn't do a bottoms up TAM. You probably shouldn't. You should probably go do another deal because you're going to take big swings and you're going to right? like it's a waste of your time. If you have a manifold portfolio, which is 23 equities placed across five years to date, like maybe you should do some calcs, you know, and I, I digress. Uh, and it's all, it always comes back to sample size and how confident you are in what you're doing. Um, I was just, the digression there, I mean, Matt, I, I, I don't even know where I could, there's so much, I really enjoyed this. I think we should start maybe with, in the growth section, is this where you like to sort of analyze the business model, the top line figures? Let's start there. You know, how are you analyzing the top line um, numbers from you know a seed stage B two B SaaS company? Yeah, yeah. And this, there's a couple mental models. One is you have to think about like what. It sounds crazy. It does sound crazy, but you you kind of think about a customer paying you money. I subscribe a subscribed quote customer or someone who's in actively engaging with you as something you purchase, right? The business purchases. And that subscriber, let's call it a subscriber just to be short, is what produces value. And you use the business as kind of this black box that uses cash to go and acquire these subscribers. And those subscribers pay you money over time and eventually they they disappear and they go to zero. And that's why we talk and the law the you know, the value that subscriber has to you is how SaaS 
you know, pontificators have talked about LTV and the CAC is how much it takes to get them in the door. And we, that's why we talk about LTV to CAC, right? And we always want to have this like really rough heuristic of three to one for LTV to CAC, which is the notion of how long it takes to get them, blah, blah, blah. That's like the mental model. But what's really, there's so much nuance there uh, because one, it's a totally back of the envelope way and an insane way to think about people if you actually think about it for a moment, but it is good for software because there's not a ton of equity value until you reach scale. But the, the LTV to CAC ratio, so just going down the line, right? We think about, okay, I go out and purchase someone for a dollar. I want to know how much I get back in the doorway or how much they're, per, they're going to give me a year, right? And that's like average contract value, some notion of ARR, blah, blah, blah. We want to think about that as like kind of like, I don't know, turn of the wheel, right? Like I have spent X, I get Y next year. And then we want to think about how that, that Y is going to trend. This is where people talk about churn, retention, right? It's just to, the same word. It just means the inverse, right? It's like, and the way that trends is so important. We'll talk about churn, which is when, say, I, I spend Y dollars to get this sort of like X every year. And then if something's churning, X is going down every year. And I'm seeing a negative, or I'm seeing negative retention, positive churn. Conversely, if I get uh, good retention, it goes up. And Matt, you know, if this is redundant, I apologize. But what's really interesting, and we kind of can zoom out and go through our previous conversation is, say you're in a big TAM with a good CAGR, you see good unit economics and a good LTV to CAC, and then you see, and it's that LTV to CAC is driven by really strong retention, right? So I'm in a big TAM, it's growing fast, and the people who I'm using it are using me more, right? That's when things get really, you start to feel it in the air sort of vibe, and that's that's the name of the game, man. So I'll pause. I, I happy, happy to kind of take it whatever I could. I'd love to unpack the retention bit. I know there's a few different ways to approach. You know, I'm going to use your phrase here. I don't, maybe it's a, maybe it's something you guys just, because you use it all the time. How many ways to skin a cat? There are a lot of ways to skin a cat. Maybe that phrase is like a Northwestern wildcat thing. Like that, I mean, that's where man, you that, just. That's dark. <laughs> maybe that's. Man, maybe that's where you picked it up. I don't know. I don't know what kind of jokes you guys are making, but um. Let's let's unpack the retention bit a bit. What types of retention can you calculate to you? What's the North Star retention metric? Yeah, North Star retention is weighted net dollar retention. There are three types of retention, net, gross, and logo. We'll go through them. Net is just for our users, feel free to Google it. People will have much better descriptions than I do. Let's say, let's say Matt and I are doing business and Matt's a SaaS company and I'm a Porsche mock who pays him money. And let's say year one, I pay Matt 10 bucks. And Matt, if this is, I know we've done this exercise, but right, if I pay Matt 13 bucks next year, that means I pay him an extra three bucks. Okay, that means I have a, Matt has 130% net retention on me. Okay, that's interesting. Let's do another one. And let's say, okay, instead of, let's say that 13 bucks, let's say Matt has a couple different plans. Let's say, I don't know, plan one, whatever. I can pay different amounts, whatever. Let's say plan one cost me 10 bucks, and then he has a plan two, it cost me five bucks. Okay, great. So I'd start with plan one. I paid Matt 10 bucks. Go to year two. Let's say Matt decreases plan one to eight bucks. And I then sign up for plan two, which is five bucks. Oh, that's interesting. So I have net uh, 130% because I paid Matt 13 bucks. I went from 10 to 13. But my gross, which is how we think about what I was paying for originally, I was paying in $10 originally for plan one. On a gross basis, I went to eight. So I have 80% gross retention. The reason we care about gross retention is get a sense of what's actually happening in like the individual plans and individual, like that's a really important metric because it talks about like the kind of bottom, like how rich risk there is. Then let's just for sake of argument, pretend we have a totally different scenario, which is I pay Matt $10 per year. 
And then I'm like, Matt, I hate your podcast. Uh, I'm not paying you any more money. And I go, well, to your, right. I, go to, I mean, that was, that was low blow there. I'm not I, sure I, why I, that had to, yeah, okay, no, continue. I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. And I, <laughs> I love the podcast and it goes from 10 to zero, right? Or better yet, let's just keep it simple. I, or I keep paying for it. And if I keep paying for it, that means Matt's one of one. I, he has logo retention on me. If I don't pay for it, he has zero for one on me and we look at retention. So three different ways. They all mean different things. Also intimately related to Tam, which we could talk about. I'll be quite happy to unpack. Matt, curious what's caught your eye or what maybe didn't make sense on that. But yeah. Yeah, no, I think you touched on a lot of things there. I think one area that the net retention discussion that we've had multiple times now is a fascinating one. This is sort of practically looking at the sort of the job pragmatically. You know, you're going to have to do a cohort analysis to get to these numbers. But Dan, I think one thing that's really helpful, and I, and I think this is a meta comment as to this entire discussion, these numbers can be helpful, the process of going through them, the process of arriving at them. But to understand what they really mean, I think we're always trying to look at benchmarks. We're always trying to figure out what does this actually signify? Like what's good, what's great, what's what's bad? A question I'd love to pose to you, to kick it back to you, for net retention especially, what is good? What's okay, what's passable and what's bad? What spooks you? Yeah, it's a great question. Just a clarifying comment for the users. I look at things on a weighted basis. People can do it differently. And if you Google churn, SAS, benchmark, you will get some content, let me tell you. But on a weighted basis, 130% net dollar retention is best in breed and will catch someone's ear. 90 in some range, there's like going down around like 85 to 90% net is when you start to get, this is weird. Something's not going wrong. Ballpark, like 100% is like, okay, right? That just means, right, we're having a good, consistent. And, and I should clarify, this is all like people who report metrics. There's like, so much selection bias in this. If you're a first time, I don't know, Matt, you know your user base, but I do, but just like these metrics are designed to be inflated by people. So just like as people pursue things, just as a digression, I think you'll find this funny, man, and I don't think we've talked about it. I went through an analysis with one of my former colleagues, Sean Fanning, who was one of just one of the smartest people you could possibly listen to. And we analyzed public software companies, S1s. And I forget the number of definitions, but it's really funny. People have a vested interest in duping and changing the definition of net dollar retention so that they can over-report it so they can seem like they're 130%. Oh, it's hilarious. And that gets into like a digression on non-GAAP SAS metrics, which I'll just pause on that. Yeah. We had a we had Guy Turner on the show. Speaking of non-gap SaaS metrics, we had a Guy Turner on the show, and he talked about uh, CAR versus ARR. And Dan, oh. I don't know. <laughs> yep. So on the topic of, I think that's a salient point. I think it's topical, and uh, yeah, it's something that's come up on this podcast, especially when it comes to non-gap SaaS metrics. Dan, I think it'd be helpful to to understand for some people. We've mostly been talking about backend economics here. But there's also front-end economics, which you alluded to when you've talked about CAC. But could you just walk people through the distinction between front-end and back-end economics? Yeah, yeah, happy to. It just Let's set a mental model, right? That's how we're thinking about it. A business is an entity going out into a big market, trying to pick up – it's uh, playing hungry on hair pulls and they're picking up balls. It's how, What's the cost to pick up a ball and how do you do it? And then that ball is like the subscriber and that retains over time, which we just talked about. So front-end economics are some notion of CAC or like how expensive is it for the hippo to pick up the ball? There's different ways to do it. And there's different like levels of sophistication. 
again, that's like the weird mental model, right? If it's hungry hippos, you want to see a three to one. The ball's worth three, costs one dollar to get the ball. I guess I, I don't want to steal too much of your thunder. Happy to talk about different CAC things, but I think CAC payback is probably the most. It's very, it's intimately related to how you think about CAC and how you get the number. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would love it if you could talk about that. Again, that's an area where if you're going through the process of recruiting for VC, if you're in business school trying to get into VC, a lot of the times LTV to CAC is like the true north metric that you're going to be focusing on in your investment pitch or trying to, you know, trying to calculate for a startup that maybe you're working on, uh, you know, hopefully pitching for interviews. But CAC payback period is a, a incredibly important metric, I think, that we track. And Dan, I would love it if you could just break that down a bit. Yeah, happy to. And just related to the LTV to CAC for any listeners, you want to really wow someone, say it's infinity, it's net retention. I digress. Yeah. So we think about CAC payback. It's really a measure of cash efficiency and end of date. Well, it depends if we're using ARR or cash collected. But let's say, you know, great. Let's go back to the example of me paying Matt 10 bucks. Okay. I pay Matt 10 bucks. And let's just say he collects, let's say, I pay him 12 bucks. He collects $1 over time. Okay, great. So there's a dollar starting a month one. Let's unwind that dollar. So we want to think about what's like the actual, like, after I pay Matt or after, uh, yeah, I pay Matt, how much did it cost to like serve the software and get all the pod to put this podcast online and have the electricity flow and go to AWS and all that, but it's gross profit. So we want to, again, rough mental math of you'll see an 80% uh, gross profit margin. So right, Matt is 80 cents for me now. Great. And then we got to unwind that 80 cents further. What happened? What did Matt do to get me to pay him that? Okay, that's interesting. Well, he probably like did some marketing, probably posted on LinkedIn a bunch, probably did some, you know, maybe he paid someone, maybe he paid a, an, I don't know, someone on Fiverr to help him with some sales stuff, right? And he did that in the past. And that's really important. And uh, that notion of being in the past means you kind of wait sales and marketing, what Matt did to get my 80 cents by how long it took him to get that 80 cents, the sales cycle length. And there's so much different like nuance there and people can write fancy formulas. But at the end of the day, Matt did something, it cost some dollars, he did in the past to get some notion of gross profit today. And so we, there's different, and that's high level what you do. The way you can kind of attribute what Matt did in the past to get my stuff today is what we would call like attribution. And you can do it in a dumb way, which is say, okay, I know it takes Matt on average, median, mean six months. And so you just linearly walk it back six months. There's different ways. People can get overly fancy with it. It doesn't really matter because at the stage of investing, these businesses are so early, but that's kind of CAC payback. And it's a great measure, right? You get if you get short CAC payback periods with net retention, I mean, your cash efficiency on a business is really good. And as an entrepreneur, that's really exciting. And as an investor, that's really great. Is that a metric that you would say most B2B SaaS investors dive in on and place a, place a great weight on? Or, and I guess it depends, right? It, to your point, if you're making 100 investments, if you're Tiger Global, you're not getting this in the weeds. But in terms of some of the metrics we've been talking about, how ubiquitous would you say a CAC payback period is? How ubiquitous would ubiquitous would you say a weighted net uh, net dollar retention is? Uh, just curious about your view of the landscape of due diligence that's done by VCs. If a firm, my like litmus test, I don't know the number, and I, I wish I gave you a better answer. If a firm's done a Series C, Series D investment at any point, I would bet they've they've thought about asking you that question. 
they may like you can probably get away with like latest series B, but almost like for sure if they've done a series C, guaranteed. And series B very likely, but not I won't guarantee it. So just for whoever, you know. But you can go as early as that, right? Like you can do that anytime. You can do it for a pre-seed company that did a pilot. Yeah, no, I Dan, I think that's that's extremely helpful. And I think it speaks to the advent of multi-stage funds, how many funds are now moving later, moving earlier. So it is a metric that I think is going to be something that, like you said, if you're, you know, entrepreneur pitching a late stage fund, if you're a potential VC associate, VC intern, it's something to focus on and something to sort of get your head around. Dan, one heuristic that you shared with me recently that I thought was fascinating was the uh, the heuristic you have around looking at ARR growth rates year over year and over you know a five year period. What type of ARR growth rates do you like to see for these seed stage companies, these B two B SaaS companies? And I think a meta comment is that this is probably one of the things that will end up on the front page of the memo, right? Like this is something that I think principals, partners, they're going to need to see. This is one of the first traction metrics they might want to understand is how is ARR growing? And so I would love if you could just uh, unpack a little bit your heuristic around ARR growth rates. Yeah, I believe the heuristic you're alluding to is triple, triple, double, double. And the heuristic states that an IPO best-in-class business is going to go 0 to 1 million ARR and then triple to 3, triple to 9, double to 18, double to 36, and then IPO. That heuristic, I believe, and I hope this is okay, was coined by Battery Ventures sometime in the mid-2010s. We can unpack that. There's a ton there. But yeah, just for an entrepreneur, VC associate, et cetera, if you you think you may be pitching someone who has not maybe uh, read your materials thoroughly and is going to quickly mental benchmark you, they will mental benchmark you against triple, triple, double, double would be my, my position. And those are lofty benchmarks, of course, you know, like I would think that not too many pre-seed or seed stage software businesses are hitting the, hitting that sort of trajectory at the stage at which we're looking at them. I would, would you agree with that, that those are loftier expectations and that's best in class? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree hundred percent. And just another way to frame it. And this is kind of glossed over, uh, which is why it's funny. It came from a growth investor is that zero to one piece because it's so like, it's so, it's just, it's so, so much about the mentality. Like no one knows how the sausage gets made. You just all of a sudden have a hot growing business and this is how we like to grow. So as a seed stage founder, Manifold, I truly believe is one of the best in the world, believing in seed stage people and like keeping entrepreneurial ability while being an investor. That like, how do you evaluate that type of like growth while they're building the plane, right? Like that's like that zero to one. There's a reason Peter Thiel wrote a book about that concept. Like it's so hard. And it's so hard to like back channel and like the seek there's the engine. Yeah. I just, I, it's such a great question. And like, it's, it's, you know, finger in the air. You hope you're right. No one knows, but that's to me, that's the secret sauce right there. I think absolutely. I think it's also a manner of projections can be challenging to make at the stage we're looking at, but to your point, and maybe this, this is a more meta conversation about the first hints of product market fit, which the investments we're looking at haven't really hit product market fit. But what do you need to believe? What projections, what does the model have to show? And what assumptions do you have to bake in to get to product market fit? And how reasonable, how viable, how realistic are those assumptions? And what are the most conservative base cases that you can put in and still see a venture scalable return, Mm -hmm. you know, 
in seven to 10 years. Totally. And that th- you just hit on like a great point, right? That triple, triple level is insane. That means in six years, if we made a seed stage company, it's going to IPO, right? Like that is so, that's aggressive even for, you know, VCs market to their LPs 10 to 12 year time horizons. That's like, I, I don't want to throw stones, but you think about the incentive structure of someone pitching triple, triple, double, double and telling the world, this is what you should do. And just to hedge their bet, it ha- cracks out to six years when maybe they're telling the other people who give them money 12 years. I mean, I, I just to give things grains of salt, you know? Absolutely. I think too, it's yeah, the, the heuristic was developed and I've seen them basically taking all of the growth rates of some of the most successful SaaS companies of the last 10 years, like to your point. And so, you know, I think, again, they're benchmarks and it's just something to keep in mind if you are a founder preparing materials for investors, if you're a founder pitching to investors. So Dan, you know, in the in the very limited time we had left, there's one last section that we didn't hit, but I think we honestly spend most of our time in the sections we just mentioned. If you could just walk listeners through how we sort of wrap up these memos and the last things we like to hit that we haven't hit already. Yeah, we talk about viability, right? Like what, if we're thinking about things coming off the slingshot, what happens when it's in the air? How defensible is it? How does it, where does it land, exit? And um, it's maybe if you can use a slingshot metaphor, you can use an airplane. If they're the captain, right? Are they going to want to fly the plane? So you want to think about people, how long are people in it for and why are they in it? And it touches on team, it touches on comparable transactions, it touches on defensibility and like economies of scale and all these fun things. But perhaps for a, a different conversation. Yeah, I think so. For another podcast, I'd also say, yeah, this is usually a part of the memo where the conversation around moat can be had. And yeah, like you mentioned, you can talk about network effects, economies of scale, switching costs. I, I think there are lots of podcasts. Uh, NFX is one. There's lots of resources dedicated dedicated to these topics. Dan and I today wanted to sort of walk listeners through the frontline work that we like to do on the memo how this thing gets put together. And I think hopefully it's been illustrative of the metrics we like to look for, the growth we like to see, and the narrative that we're trying to compile. Dan, this has been amazing. I appreciate you coming on. I think this has been a, a very uh, very educational session, if nothing else, for myself. But yeah, Dan, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. We're going to have to get you on, I don't know, maybe in July, maybe in August. You're After that comment about not liking my podcast, I'm just going to force you to be on my podcast now like every month. No, just charge me. I keep, Matt, always a pleasure, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Take care, Dan. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.